Yeah, well, it's been like lighting off and it's been kind of encouraging, though, because like I wanted to get a little bit more perspective on what was going on with the John Deere strike, for Mm. instance. And I Googled like John Deere strike podcast and top of the results. There's Jonah Furman from Labor Notes on Chapo. And I'm like, okay, I'm finally going to listen to an episode of Chapo now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, he's been. He's been killing it. He's been like the go-to source for me. Yeah. He's been absolutely invaluable for for our coverage on this. Absolutely. And everybody at Labor Notes in general, but it has been cool to see that like Jonah's tweets are like reaching audiences that aren't just traditionally like yeah. a bunch of communists who sit around and talk about unions. <laughs> right. uh, they're like reaching the mainstream. He's getting yeah. like quote tweeted by angry conservatives and shit, which is good. Keep oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, what is it? Uh, to be attacked by the enemy is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. I yeah, think it, is, is Mao's line on that. Exactly. <laughs> they reveal themselves as paper tigers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But it's also been good because, like, having all those sources at least has been nice in a way, like, not just because it's good to see more labor coverage, which is the important thing. Right. But also the really important thing is then I have a million pieces of, like, reference material to throw at annoying assholes who are, like, the reason that all the workers are going on strike is because they're mad about the vaccines. <laughs> like, no. the, the only people going on strike because they're mad about the vaccines are cops who are not workers. Yeah. It's that simple. And, <laughs> like, and even they aren't doing it. They're no, like loudly yeah. blustering about it. Where the, I saw like the New York City cops were like, we're going to have 10,000 people off the force because of these fascist <laughs> mandates. And then the, the news comes out and they're like, uh, 34 people are on unpaid leave. Yeah, who cares? Like, yeah, I would like, love it. 10,000 yeah, cops should fucking, fucking resign. Right, yeah. yeah. I'm like, I wish that you were like, for once, that you weren't cowards about something and it was just this, but nope, it just has to stick right with, you know, a a lot of talk and then not actually fucking doing anything. Well, it's just, it's a really convenient little puff piece. Like, if even one cop like takes unpaid leave because of the vaccine mandate, the news gets to blow it up because it's an issue that talks about like cops and should we be worried about their well-being in the workplace? There's like, of course the only workplace they fucking care about anyone's well-being in. And then also it's um it throws doubt on the vaccine issue, which is like there should be absolutely no fucking doubt about the vaccine. It works. <laughs> Go get it. Like Yeah. yeah. Well, and like <laughs> I was going to say, there was a little bit of discussion about, like, some people who have really big contracts that they have basically given up in order to to do this sort of, like, bullshit stance against the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But then... If you actually look at some of the other ways in which they're compensated, like they're going to be fine. Like they're not actually yeah. worried about these lost contracts. It's all posturing. It's yeah. and it's it's like the same thing as when you will see like we just had the whole stupid election cycle. I'm not going to talk about that because fuck that. But mm-hmm. like you'll see the fucking media around this time period being like, oh damn. We had all of these places defunding the police last year. How is that going to affect this crime wave? And I'm like, A, there isn't a crime wave. B, none of the police got defunded. C, why are you like making all of this up? 
Like, I mean, we know why we have you yeah. know, whole episodes about why, but it's just so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, well, right. But even are... if there is crime, like this is for one, we're going into the season of cold weather where people have we have a huge issue with people being able to stay in their houses and people are desperate. I mean, like the, if there is any crime at all, these are people just trying to fucking survive. Like, yeah, well, I'm like, sorry. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Insi- to, like, there's, there's a re- we're not confronting the actual issue. And if you really cared about it, then you would look at things in a more like actual material way. Well, and like the number one thing that drives people to crime is economic insecurity. And yeah. guess what's at an all-time fucking high, or at least in living memory in the United States? But, fucking but economic John, insecurity. The, the news told me that crime happens when cops are sad because people are mean to them. i think that's actually correct but only if you are meaning to say that the cops get upset and go out and commit what any reasonable person would consider a crime that's right I guess we're going to get right into the episode. Uh, we are entirely listener supported. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Work Stoppage. If you haven't checked out the Patreon, just go hang around on the page. You know, you don't have to buy anything. Just see if you like it. Uh, get in the Discord if you're not already. There's a lot of great memes from the meme review and otherwise in there to check out. And if you could, please leave us a five star review. But you know who really deserves a five star review is the United Auto workers who are on strike right now and some of whom are unfortunately grieving over uh, a death of one of their fellow workers who was killed while walking to the picket line yeah so boy there has been a lot that has happened with the john deere strike since we we first covered it um Folks may be aware of all the stuff that's been going on, but the first thing that we want to get into, as John said, is this this tragedy that happened last week on Wednesday morning when a UAW Local 79 member, uh, a man named Dick Rich, who had been on the line overnight picketing, I believe walking the line from midnight to 6 a.m., covering wow. basically like the, the third shift uh, on the picket line, was trying to walk back to his car, was struck at an intersection by a vehicle and and tragically killed. And this, like, is not just a tragedy because you know it's it's a, a union member killed on the on the line, but this was not just a random, completely unforeseeable traffic accident. Like, right. the there are a bunch of factors that made this. way more likely than it had to be and they were all prompted by deer because uh we've had a ton of reports from workers who are on that picket site and this is mostly coming out of jonah Furman, who has been covering this story incredibly well and has been you know invaluable for for getting information out about this but since the strike started deer has been systematically attacking the uaw's ability to picket by both, you know, restricting where folks can be, going to courts and getting injunctions against picket sites, and in this particular case, requiring folks to park 
very far away from the facility to come up to the picket line and not doing any sort of maintenance. And this, you know, the city is also involved here. This is specifically in, in Milan, Illinois, where folks have been complaining about how the streetlights between the area that they were able to park and the, and where their picket spot was have been out and not working ever since like well before this started. And they'd been complaining for months and the city didn't come to fix it. Nobody did anything about it. And so you have, you know, darkness on the picket line combined with folks being parked, having to park way too far away and busy intersections near an industrial park. Like it's a you know recipe for this sort of awful tragedy that, that we has now happened. Yeah. And, I mean, it really highlights the way that these union struggles are a community struggle in many absolutely. ways as well. And just, how much the union and the workers and people in the community in general rely on infrastructure, uh, such as something as simple as streetlights, is something that you don't see highlighted all that often until you have um, not exactly the same, but like cases where you know Amazon is changing the length of the streetlights or the the stoplights at an right. intersection to prevent unionization. As soon as one of these big tech corporations or, or lar otherwise large corporations uh, asks about, you know, having the infrastructure changed, they jump to it. But like if concerned workers uh, file, you know, hey, there's the streetlights aren't working independently, they don't lift a finger to help anybody. Right. They, they wait until someone has has, you know, died in order to yeah. do anything because they did get out there and fix it, but only after prompted by this absolute catastrophe. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, and, and so we have a quote here from Ron McEnroy, the director of UAW Region 4. He said, quote, It is with great sadness that we announced the death of our brother who was reporting to the picket line. Our brother was fighting for what is right, and we all mourn for his family and coworkers. Through our tears, we continue to picket and honor the solidarity of our fallen brother. But we do this with heavy hearts today. And, like, that's, I think, something that sometimes gets lost, like, when we're talking about these strikes and we get all revved up and excited about them that and we'll get into, you know, the reasons why folks are striking. And, but I don't really think that we necessarily always get into, you know, how big a risk folks are putting themselves at to, to be on the picket line. Like not, not just for, you know, tragedies like, like this, but you know, we've seen direct violence on like the warrior met picket line. We've seen, you know, a whole lot of harassment on especially like when the, when the workers were you know picketing at El Milagro in Chicago and just also the fact that these folks are you know putting their families at economic risk by doing this in order for, you know to collectively improve the lives of everyone around them and so like it this is you know just another example of how like going out on the picket line as central as that is, is, is not just, you know, a fight about wages. It's like actually putting yourself on the line for the, your coworkers and, yeah. and for the community that you're a part of. And we're going to cover it later, but I mean, like there's been a myriad of death threats against the, the Netflix workers. I mean, like yeah. it's, mm -hmm. in, if you are putting yourself out there in solidarity with worker struggle and, and the, the struggle against, you know, any sorts of oppression, like there are real risks and, yep. and, Honestly, the people in power are interested in maintaining a system that makes those risks dangerous and deadly. Yeah. Well, and it's Absolutely. 
it's these union workers who are maintaining the integrity and the safety and the reliability of all the processes that keep the the John Deere company moving forward anyway. Because uh, we've mentioned this before, but they hired scab workers and one immediately crashed a tractor inside of their plant. And then just yesterday, as per Jonah Furman, who else, uh, we have reports and photos of a rubbish fire at yeah. John Deere Harvester Works. So you've got to, you know it's not just that these workers are standing up for their own health and safety. They're also saying like, Hey, if you want this company to operate at all, (laughs) you have to give us what we want. Yeah, no, absolutely. But in some, some happier news on Mm -hmm. the, the strike front here, there was another story that came out of this. That was a, you know, much lighter note, uh, where we saw some really great uh, scenes of solidarity at the end of last week when at the Waterloo, Iowa facility where deer workers are striking, some fellow union workers at RWDSU Local 110, including workers from General Mills and Quaker Oats, stopped by the local UAW union hall and dropped off over 9,000 pounds of food and supplies, including stuff like diapers, hand warmers, toiletries, canned goods, hygiene stuff, warm clothes... Yeah, like and what one of the things that I think is really important to illuminate about this is the responsiveness because the request was put out for help on the line, and it took them thirty minutes to put together <laughs> this nine thousand pounds of food and supplies. I mean, this is this is the power of an organized worker movement, and and really shows the solidarity between uh, the workers. In fact, they even said that the the kind of shows that the union movement in this area is pretty strong and and actually is prepared to you know be solidaristic with other striking members even if they're not the exact they're they're like they're not deer workers they're just workers and and that's the reason why they came out and and it's really good to see i mean the uh rwdsu uh local president shane forbes literally said an injury to one is an injury to all i mean it's it's good that they have like good rhetoric like this out there especially in leadership saying that solidarity is something that we have to do in order to build the power to win yeah well and it's it's cool to see what they gave as well because it's evidence of how materially minded they are and uh their awareness of what really you know, might not be affordable sometimes during a strike because, uh, you know, it's one thing to show up and cook everybody on the picket line dinner. It's another thing to hand out frozen meat and canned foods and diapers and like absolute, you know, critical staples of people's lives without which uh, would entirely fall apart. Yeah. And and this sort of thing, like, obviously it's it's great for this one struggle, but this is the sort of thing that that like is a shot in the arm for the labor movement as a whole. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, you know, folks, when they're you're going out on the picket line, you 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 hope you have you know at least your coworkers' backs. But to know that there are you know thousands, potentially millions of other union workers at other f- facilities who will also show up to materially support you when they're not on strike, right. when they're still you know when their lives are going on relatively normally, like that sort of thing is so empowering because like to to know that you can rely on other workers in your community is like that's that's kind of the whole game at least as far as as solidarity goes like that is 
makes your ability to strike to to know how much longer you can materially stay out there is so incredibly valuable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Especially since they they rejected the their most recent contract proposal, which means that they're going to be out there on strike longer and I think that Actions like this really empower the workers to make that difficult decision of staying out there without a paycheck. Right. So this contract that they rejected, this is a proposal for an immediate 10% raise followed by 5% raises uh, two and four years down the line, respectively, uh, plus an 8.5,000 dollar ratification bonus and, quote, more money for retirement and preserving pensions and this did not this seems to be the number one sticking point for the union membership which is very heartening to see they're the thing that caused them to strike this contract offer down is that it did nothing to eliminate two-tier and i believe when i was listening to jonah explain this on another podcast uh they actually wanted to instate yet another tier uh where they would only give these contract benefits to people who were hired before the contract was instated and everyone afterwards would essentially be like 12 dollar an hour uh temp workers scab workers etc yeah so and since, you know, the union has rejected this, Deer has then come out and said to the press, but not to the UAW at the bargaining table, that this was their best and final offer, which, I mean, we'd need to see, you know, the exact details. I'm not a lawyer, but folks have pointed out that seems like kind of a classic definition of bad faith uh negotiating <laughs> i mean right. how could it, how, how could it not be really when when you offer up your quote best and final offer it, there's no way to tell that it's that unless you explicitly say this right. is our best and final offer at the negotiating table yeah and this goes back to a point that i've made since the beginning of this show is that there's no actual like burden of proof on this like if it right. really was the limitations of what the company could do then they would have all sorts of documentation to represent that fact but it's not it's just held at their word and they in companies do this all the time it's like ah oh, this is the best we're willing to offer it's not their right. it's not that the it's the best that they can offer it's the what they're willing to and for some reason that's held as some sort of like lever of power that they're allowed to wield which is absolutely ridiculous well the the press is just um and and maybe this is why they said it to the press instead of to the union at the negotiating table but the press is happy for any organization large enough to have like a an office that they their reporters can call is always happy to uncritically report what they said and so john deere knows that like yes this is going to piss off the union and possibly create more problems within the actual negotiating situation right now but it's going to deal a huge blow to the or at least they're trying to make it deal a huge blow to the goodwill felt towards these striking workers by the general populace and i'm sad to say but like dads across america unfolding their new york times or washington post on a sunday morning are probably going to be inclined to agree with this kind of like bad faith tactic that john deere is using yeah because you know the all of those articles will pro they'll 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 prominently put up things like eight and a half thousand dollar instant ratification bonus they're turning mm-hmm. that down they turned down a 10 percent raise look how greedy these workers are and at no point in there will they mention that John Deere made a $6 billion profit over the last year and that most of these workers are, you know, averaging like $20 an hour. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and they probably won't mention the two-tiered pay system at all. Right. And a lot of times when they do mention that kind of thing, they go over all the things the union turned down, and then at the end they're like, and the primary uh, sticking point for union members seems to be the two-tiered pay system, more at 11. And then they just leave it there. When that's like, you know, completely burying the lead, that's the most critical thing. Yeah, Yeah. they they act as if it's some esoteric like detail that mm-hmm. some oh this is just some little nitpick that they're hung up on for some reason yeah well and and i mean it really just proves that they're not interested in like the actual like factual information just like in our second story where you know we actually see yep. uh what i mentioned earlier the netflix worker who was fi- fired for trying to create a walkout uh and then being accused of of leaking information but yet somehow that information is still being leaked after they're right. being after they've been fired and there's no there's no indication from the company that they are going to go back on that thing and they're going to continue to perpetuate the lie against this worker uh in order to keep fomenting like retaliation against the union and these workers who are trying to show solidarity with anti like transphobic kind of content but yeah, so so after the the walkout from from Netflix employees in, in support of trans employees and, and other allies at the company, now the the two workers who were disciplined, you know, one being temporarily suspended and one ultimately being fired, have now filed uh, unfair labor practices against the company, saying that Netflix's actions were designed to stop workers from speaking out about their working conditions, including their desire to create a safe environment for Netflix staff, which, yeah, I mean, (laughs) that seems pretty clear cut. As you said, Lena, like their, their story that they fired this person, uh, their, uh, their black trans program manager for leaking internal metrics has you know fallen apart under even the most basic scrutiny of the fact that the very leaks that they claimed were being caused by this employee, as have you said, continued to happen to the same news outlets right. after they've been fired. So it's like, okay, well, that excuse is bullshit. So clearly, even if somebody was inclined to believe that for the reason for being fired and that was flimsy to begin with, like it it just doesn't hold up under like any sort of examination. And so yeah. I think that they're completely right to fire file these unfair labor practices. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, once you factor in the, the commonsensical, I would hope, understanding that like as soon as you start trying to organize labor in your workplace, your employer is going to drag up an absence from three years ago and try to put right. you on probation for it. Anybody should be able to see through this, you know, haze of bullshit, I think quite easily. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, it also more specifically, I mean, just mentioning the fact that this is a uh, black trans worker, like really does show that there is a deep transphobic and racist tendency within these inst- institutions like Netflix and that yeah. they're really not actually about any sort of accountability within their own structure, but for disciplining the most, uh, as they see, disposable style of worker. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is uh, especially seemingly endemic to the uh, tech industry because we have almost one for one examples of this same thing happening at both Amazon and Google just since the time we started recording this show. And yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in addition to the firing being clearly provoked by organizing, as well as, as you said, the the company's culture of, of transphobia, like this, the person they fired also is 
in in the middle of their pregnancy right now and is now about to lose their health insurance. Yeah. They were quoted in an interview with The Verge, quote, amidst all the stress, I'm trying to take one day at a time and focus on my health. As a high-risk pregnancy, I have to be careful. We don't even know what our health insurance situation is, and we're scheduled to be in a hospital having a baby in less than 30 days. And so, like, it's not as if these are the only people organizing or these are the only people being outspoken here as you said like they are clearly targeting you know the folks that they think that they would have the easiest time getting away with doing this sort of intimidation to try and shut down the organizing right and i mean like these workers have faced online retaliation just from the fact that they're fomenting this reactionary kind of mentality against this sort of action to say oh this is just naive you know this you know it's not that bad or whatever but like even even if for some reason that were true which i don't believe like there is still true attacks on these workers for trying to stick up for their rights to say something and and to just think that you can ignore the fact that there is like public issues go that go on when you just unilaterally attack workers like this like it I don't know. They're just calling on their reactionary uh, people, like people that they know will muddy the issue and get away from the actual problem, which is the fact that the workers don't have any say in the work conditions. Yeah. Well, and I mean, Americans and also the American media, I think, in general, is very, very reluctant to turn on entertainment companies. Uh, yeah. Probably not least of all because journalism and entertainment are like kind of adjacent to each other. But I think also because like, you know, Americans fucking love Netflix and yes. otherwise like progressive, like, you know, uh, they've got one of those signs in their yard that says like, you know, everyone is welcome. Science is real, whatever. Uh, they, they're like, Oh, uh, you know, I don't know if Netflix is really in the wrong here. If it's enough to get me to stop subscribing or anything, because like, this is this is a fucking cultural touchstone for Americans. This is a sticking point for them, and that's where people really show whose lives they care about and whose lives they don't. Uh, and yeah. I think Netflix knows that and wants to coast on their goodwill, despite you know routinely uh, firing people who try to organize and or are anybody but a cis white man. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, yeah. So obviously, you know, we we've. Covered plenty of stories with, with the NLRB before, so we know this is going to take a while, I'm sure, to process. And unfortunately, uh, relying on them, I don't, the best case scenario is reinstatement with back pay. But we've seen how long that's even taken at uh, like a place like Voodoo Donuts. And I'm sure Netflix can afford to hire some pretty good lawyers, so... I'm sure they will drag this out as long as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. Well, and if we can find a, a fund for this uh, person who needs their health care, we'll make. We'll, and if we don't manage to find something, please, and you and you do, go ahead and post it either in the Discord or anywhere on the yeah, Facebook absolutely. page. All those things, and we'd be happy to to repost that as well. Uh, but I guess in the same kind of vein of, you know, people being fired for organizing, we can move to our, our newest kind of prospect in the Amazon battle, right. which is the Staten Island Union, uh, which has just filed for their union election. And just like in the Bessemer, Alabama situation, uh, Amazon has inflated the number of, of workers in these warehouses to kind of create this illusion of of minority yeah like 
and and to what you were saying, like, is I mean, yet another connection here. Folks may remember from last year, kind of at the the a few months into the pandemic, when the the first big protests about lack of safety conditions were really going off at a lot of places, including Amazon. There was a big protest and a walkout led at, at this cluster of warehouses by Chris Smalls, who is now one of the main organizers for the, the Amazon Labor Union, which is you know an, an independent labor union that they formed to specifically to organize this cluster of warehouses in Staten Island. And so they've been, over the past year, going through the process of flyering, organizing, talking to people, having, they, they've been putting out a lot of uh, good media about it, like videos of their, the barbecues they were having, handing out donuts and coffee, having a lot of really good conversations with workers and stuff. And, you know, they're organizing for the same stuff that, that Amazon workers are organizing everywhere, not to be, you know, run into the ground by, by the world's, you know, biggest circulation company. And I had a quote here from Smalls on NPR, last week who said we want better working conditions we want higher wages we want longer breaks we want better medical leave options and that one specifically uh to point out from from following smalls on twitter i feel like it's almost every day or at least a couple of times a week he'll tweet out video of people coming out of these warehouses to ambulances because of how overworked the people are there how like tailorized everything is to push the bodies of the workers in these facilities to their absolute limit. And at some point, you know, to the breaking point. And so it's, at some point, you know, something's got to give there. And so hence the Amazon labor union. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that we do, you know, always have our, our uh, unfortunate reservations because of the amount of union busting that goes on in these right. situations. Like we really are hoping that these workers, get their state-recognized union. Obviously, in uh, many ways, they already are a union, but they're just they're fighting for their state recognition now. But uh, because of the amount of union busting that Amazon is going to employ, there is a significant chance of this being a, a replay of, of Bessemer in a certain sense, unfortunately. And we're really hoping that that's not the case uh, and that you know a lot of workers have learned from from these struggles, but it's so hard to get around to every single person and educate them. As we covered in the the Amazon deep dive, that there is a huge turnover. There's a huge Absolutely. amount of people that are that are dif- that it's difficult to reach, and it's it's just a hurdle that has to be overcome. But Honestly, it's very difficult. Well, and uh, I mean, that's a big part of the reason that Amazon can inflate the supposed number of workers in the facility so high is because, like, how do you go in and verify who does and doesn't work at an Amazon facility? It's not really possible in any reasonable amount of time. And then additionally, in the middle of all this, Smalls is in the middle of the, the New York's attorney general pursuing a case over his firing. So he's yeah. saying that he was fired as retaliation for his activism, which I think is quite obviously true. Yeah. Uh, and then Amazon, of course, says that he violated quarantine and safety measures, which is what they say when you try and organize and something that they do not care about when they're working you to the bone, you know, half a foot away from another person. Yeah, it's like what they pulled on the the farmers in India when really mm-hmm. what they use is they yeah. use these uh these clustered bunches of cops who carry covid with them to strike break and and do like they're not interested in actually like 
upholding any sort of safety precaution. In fact, many of these organizers are the people out there fighting for these safety precautions in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. That's what their initial walkout last year was about. It was protesting the fact that the company wasn't actually doing anything. The right. only thing they were using COVID safety protocols for was as a, you know, a way to discipline people, not as a way to actually, you know, make a safe work environment. And to to your point about the numbers here, because that is is definitely a concern with this drive, because organizers have managed to get over two thousand signed cards, which is great. But Amazon's been able to jack up the size of the the stated size of the workforce in this cluster of warehouses to over nine thousand people. So, um, so yeah, it's a the, this is going to be yet another very difficult uphill battle. Mm-hmm. so we'll we'll yeah. we'll have to watch it and see well, how it goes but and and i mean i don't want to like just conflate numbers or anything like that but when the amazon uh drive was going on it was similar around 2000 cards for uh what was actually around what 3000 employees or something like that something but like they that, inflated yeah. it to 6000 because of these numbers and if we assume that they're just like doubling numbers that you know maybe it's around you know for 4000 to 4500 that are in there and we have you know half at least signed cards and that this number of 9000 is in, is basically doubled at the very least yeah and this is all at the same time that Amazon's also already rolling out a, a, a second anti-union campaign in Bessemer mm-hmm. since that election is is almost certainly going to have to be rerun because of Amazon's malfeasance and fuckery that, that like was clearly illegally designed to intimidate people and influence the outcome of the election. So, I mean, on the, on the one hand, that does at least give the organizers at the ALU in, in, in Staten Island they've already got examples of what the playbook that Amazon's going to run. But part of the problem is the reason that that's so effective is there's all these structural issues with this sort of job that just make it so much more difficult to organize. So, I mean, they've been doing a ton of great stuff, their outreach, the stuff that they've been tweeting about, at least on social media looks really good. Like not just, not just their online outreach, but also the stuff they've been showing about where they've been organizing, how they, they set up like organizing tents at the bus stops in the area that folks use to commute the ways that they were getting to people by having basically just informational barbecues doing like movie nights so that when people are coming out of like second or third shift, there's folks out there with like donuts or food to be like, Hey, you want to hang out for a little bit, talk about how much it sucks to work at Amazon and how we need to make it a better place. So I, I think the stuff that they're doing for their organizing all seems fantastic. It's just, we're going to, we're going to have to see how that, you know, is able to stack up against the gigantic structural advantage that the state gives Amazon in these sorts of things. Right. And I'm certain that some of our listeners are, are, you know, within the area of, of this place. So if you get an opportunity to go out and show solidarity with these people, it would be a really, it would be a really good thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely. I guess in the similar area of the country, we have uh, some New York City taxi drivers, which we have not covered, though it's been an ongoing struggle over the p- quite a long time, where uh, many taxi drivers were subject to basically predatory investment banking bullshit, where suddenly these uh, 
this this thing that allows them to do their job, this uh, this taxi uh, medallion was inflated to over a million dollars each, causing people to go into extreme amounts of debt in order to to actually even just you know run their taxis, and then many of them were left with so much debt that they found it to be drowning. Uh, to the point that there were many suicides in relation to to these sort of financial conditions, and they have had a a, a significant win in in the in the recent days, where luckily I guess it's still quite a bit, but they've managed to set the maximum debt amount to about one hundred and seventy thousand dollars compared to the one million that was previously you know kind of imposed on these people. No, it's just ludicrous to have someone taking out a $1 million loan to get started in any industry. I mean, that shouldn't be necessary, and it makes it totally inaccessible, especially when these predatory loans, uh, according to this article, were often offered with interest rates of above 12%, which is nightmarish, hellish, impossible to pay back. Like, Yeah, and, and this was all coming out, and this is like directly out of uh, a, a basically – an arrangement that the city had with several, you know, several banks that were involved in this, where they were specifically targeting this at immigrants to New York City, saying, "Hey, this is your ticket to the middle class. Yeah, right. yeah, it's going to be a big loan. It's going you're going to go into a lot of debt to get this taxi medallion, so you can go out there and drive, but." Once you get it, you'll be able to pay it off, and then you know you'll have this incredibly valuable investment that you can pass down to your family. Except for the fact that with you know that that level of interest, combined with the 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 fact that the values that they were putting on these medallions were completely arbitrarily jacked through the roof. Right. When the market collapsed, partially due to the introduction of rideshare apps like you know Uber and Lyft, whose Entire purpose isn't really to make a profit. It's to destroy unionized uh, taxi services in order mm-hmm. to turn, you know, driving into instead of being, you know, a living wage job that somebody can do and, and have as, as their, you know, something that they are able to do as a career as something that is paid as absolutely low as possible below minimum wage in many cases. And so doing that dropped the value of these medallions by I think like a factor of at least 10 in many cases. And so what ended up happening is you have a lot of these, these, you know, first generation immigrants who had come to the country and were sold this bill of goods. And then they are driving for decades and are still in debt or in even higher debt because they're, they're like not even able to pay off the interest because it's so high. And so you have these folks who are, instead of leaving their kids something that they thought was going to be, you know, an asset for them, they're, they're being saddled with these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And, and, and as you said, you know, tragically led to, to many folks and committing suicide because they didn't think there, there was any way they were going to be able to get out from under it. And so like, I've been, following this for a couple of months because they've been protesting this for a while now. They, uh, back, I want to say about two months ago, the taxi drivers blocked, uh, I believe the Brooklyn bridge. Um, I apologize if that's the wrong bridge, but like during rush hour, they blocked one of the big bridges in the city to, you know, protest 
this level of debt. And they've been camping outside of City Hall picketing 24-7 for a month and a half to demand that the city actually do something to address this. Because again, like this isn't as if they said they could afford, they lied on some loan application to say, I have assets that I don't actually have. And therefore you should give me a loan to buy a giant house or something. Uh, it, it was, it's literally just a license. It's just a piece of paper that says you are allowed to operate a cap. Right. And the city purposefully worked with banks to, you know, throw these people in these massive amounts of debt. And so like, it was absolutely incumbent on the city to fix this thing. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, what, quick math, like what's 12% on a $1 million loan? It's $120,000. Do you make that in a year driving a taxi in New York City? I don't fucking think so. Uh, not after expenses and repairs right. and gas and everything. I don't think you fucking do. So it, you, it's, you're just underwater right out of the gate. And they knew it. You know, that's the thing. Like there was never like a good faith effort to make this a workable system. It's yeah, all it was meant to in coordination with the, with the ride share programs. Exactly. I mean, they, they were literally hand in hand, hand yeah. in yeah. glove, I should say like earlier in the year, de Blasio, the, the current, the outgoing mayor of New York had announced a plan where we're really going to help these drivers. We're going to, we, we hear you. We're going to come and we're going to do this because we're great. We will eliminate, $29,000 of your debt, which like, that's a lot of money. That's great. Except for the fact that again, person after like driver after driver after driver, there's a, a really good, more perfect union video where they interview these people, but also the New York taxi workers Alliance who have been the, you know, they're the actual folks who have been doing this protesting have been telling the stories of these drivers for months, person after person. in debt. And the city's like, we'll write off $20,000 of that. It's like, what the fuck? What is that? That's bullshit. It's the same thing that they do with student loan debt. In a lot of cases in the United States, they'll be like, Joe Biden is concocting an incredible plan to give you $15,000 of student loan debt forgiveness if you're under 35, don't own a home, and only attended a two-year school. Yeah, Problem I mean, solved. like, and and I mean, even that amount is like, oh well, we'll pay your interest for one year, right, right, <laughs> right. exactly. And so the thing that, and part of the reason that I wanted to to wait to talk about this story until it has a resolution was because I was kind of hoping we would get a happy resolution to it, which we finally have. Because like, this is an example I think that shows that you know if you actually stick to a mass protest you actually can get shit done because like it, it's been months that these folks have been protesting and, and, you know, steadily getting more and more people aware of the problem, more and more people sympathizing to the point where the public pressure became so high that they forced the city's hand because they like, finally that, cause that's the thing. Like these guys, have, these folks have been doing these protests for weeks and weeks and weeks. They've been on 24 seven near city hall for a month and a half. And just a couple weeks ago, uh, I think about a dozen or, or so uh, maybe, maybe a couple dozen, of the the protesters started a hunger strike. And so they had folks who had been on a hunger strike for just over like, I believe 14 days since when, when this deal was announced and eventually like their, through their efforts, through their organizing, through their reaching out to folks for solidarity, they were able to get enough public pressure, including just recently a story in the New York times, which came out right before this deal was announced 
to to force the city to 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 agree to this deal of not you know writing off of this paltry twenty nine thousand dollars of this giant debt, but the vast majority of it and capping it at one hundred and seventy, which one hundred seventy thousand dollars is a lot of money. Like that's that's not a negligible amount of debt. But when you're coming from from some of these people who have six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars, like that's an amount you could see them working to be able to pay off. It is not a the sort of thing that you know hopefully would would drive somebody into such a place where where they might might you know be pushed into killing themselves like like some of these these folks tragically did. And and so this is a huge win by by the the Taxi Workers Alliance, and it's all down to their their willingness to fight and to, to shut down some of the busiest bridges in the world and protest outside city hall for over a month and a half in the, the rain and the cold and, and, and to not eat for that long. Like, so I just, just, you know, huge props to these folks for actually putting themselves out there and, and fighting for this relief. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, a, a 170 K is still a, a rather large loan, but it's not the absolutely soul crushing, um, completely right. underwater amount that 700,000 to a million can be. Yeah. And I see, Dan, you have a little uh, a note in here that is supposed to be promo of your uh, Patreon episode. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't know uh, if you wanted to it, go over that. Uh, well, just as yeah, kind of no, a more I, the- on a more theory level uh, out, outside of, of the more like human and. and consequences that we're talking about in this in this piece yeah there was just from the theoretical aspect of this story there was just something i thought was interesting because uh this is one that's a little weird for our our unions because it's 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 from the theory part this isn't technically a, a you know a protest of members of the proletariat because these folks aren't you know, employed working at a wage. They, they, they own their means of production, although they have to buy it through a bank. But it's, it's one of the, the places where I think it's important to, because it illustrates that there are segments of the petty bourgeoisie where I think that term sometimes gets misconstrued to always mean every member of this, anybody who's a small shop owner or who has any sort of ownership of their means of production, like a small farmer may technically fall in that category. That doesn't mean that person's rich. Like a lot, there are, you know, people who own uh, a a bunch of car dealerships or somebody who owns 20 pizza franchises. Yeah. Those members of the Fetty bourgeoisie are, you know, going to oftentimes be reactionary and drawn towards bourgeois ideology. But there are also segments like these taxi drivers who are, in their actual like living conditions far closer to the working class and completely capable of being allies and like like really like strongly integrated within the working class mm-hmm. as they see their conditions you know pushed down by the the monopoly growth of of big business like things like Uber and Lyft well it's uh, s- it, it's an expression of this part of uh conservatism, I think conservative liberalism, especially in the United States, that a lot of people have remarked on. They're like, oh, well, isn't it funny? A lot of Republicans actually want people to own their own means of production, too. They want to turn everybody into a small business owner. And it's like, yes, there's this weird kind of financialization uh, of of ownership of your own little personal means of production that proletarianizes members of the petite bourgeoisie and in many cases 
can in the case of like a taxi driver who might have an over a million dollar loan it's 12 percent interest puts them in worse financial standing than many of the members of what you would think about as like the typical modern day proletariat service and retail workers and you know whatever else yeah and and so i just thought it was interesting to point that out because like when we're doing, you know, class analysis of different situations, I, I think there's a tendency to write off sometimes from some segments of the left, anybody who doesn't fit into the technical box of wage laborer slash proletarian, that person doesn't have the material interest. Like one of the classics examples of this was or in the beginning of the 20th century, people thinking that small peasants or what we would call, you know, small farm owners, family farm owners, that they would automatically be conservative and not support the workers because they technically would own their own means of production. But it's like, no, this is a class in transition and you have to really examine the material conditions. There's a difference between the guy who owns five jet ski dealerships and shows up on January 6th because he doesn't think that his kids should be taught that this country had slavery. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the immigrant taxi driver who technically yeah they own their taxi medallion they own their means of production but they are out here working like day in and day out the same sort of hurt like horrific hours and, and conditions that everybody else is because of the conditions that they're being crushed by the big bourgeoisie in the form of banks and and major companies and so well, like it's really important to do that sort of material analysis when we f like are looking for who can be the allies of the working class, even if they may not technically, from our analysis, be members of the proletariat? Yeah, right. well, and you if you're interested in more of this sort of thing, uh, I think that we can point you to uh, the Patreon where, where Dan explains a lot of this uh, sort of thing. Uh, although, uh, John, did you want to make a point before yeah, we moved on? Yeah, you, you can't just rely... It, it's critical to understand that you can't just rely on like the taxonomy of class as some kind of like irrefutable metric of what everybody's, you know, class interests are going to be. It's heterogeneous. And the way that we, it, it's the same thing you run into. It's the problem of language in all fields where you have to divide things into categories, which is that these categories don't really exist. They're a tool for us to understand uh, what's going on in the world. And like you said, like a lot of these workers, I think, uh, are in the same situation where like some insane brained so-called leftists will say like, Oh, if you own your own home, you're like a class <laughs> enemy. Right. It's like, no, people own their own homes to get out from under renting. A lot right. of people start their own tiny one or two person businesses to get out from under wage labor. I've often fantasized about starting a soup cart where I'm the only employee and I go around and I sell my soups to people because that would be better for me than a system where I either have to take orders from or give orders to somebody else. Yeah. And like, the the answer is not the the libertarian Jeffersonian false idea of we're gonna we're gonna make everybody a member of the petty bourgeoisie. Right. Everyone is self employed, or a, which goes back to the whole you know, every nation of yeoman farmers idea from Thomas <laughs> Jefferson. That's bullshit. That's not the answer. But that doesn't mean that you write off everybody that doesn't fit into this you know sure. one box you got to really look at the conditions there are and only two types of worker steel worker and ceo <laughs> <laughs> right exactly and speaking of having to really look at the material conditions involved we've got another strike here and unfortunately another instance of undemocratic union uh, regulations here that 
have seemingly kind of screwed over a bunch of workers uh, at Heaven Hill Bourbon Distillery. Mm-hmm. Because, so these workers, this is a, there were, there have been over 400 UFCW local 23D members who workers at Heaven Hill Bourbon Distillery in Bardstown, Kentucky, who've been on strike for about six weeks. But recently there, they came to a, a tentative agreement that, that then, you know, got accepted, which seems like, Hey, cool. They struck, they won what they wanted. But, Unfortunately, when you actually dig into the details of what happened, it's not quite clear that that's actually, you know, what occurred. And unfortunately, there's some shades of stuff like what happened with the most recent contract at UPS, which is the the, the big thing that I thought of when reading this. And so this this distillery produces brands like Elijah Craig, Evan Williams, uh Henry McKenna, Parker, a, a bunch old Fitzgerald, a bunch of like major bourbon brands mm-hmm. in the US. And so these folks have been on strike partially to try and keep the company from being able to forcibly schedule folks on non-traditional schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I love the euphemism. What a powerful euphemism for, um, yeah. hey, uh, here's a 40-hour work week across five non-consecutive days in a calendar week. Lovely. That's my fucking yeah. favorite. Yeah, this is is it's very similar, although not quite the same level of ridiculous exploitation that we were hearing, you know, from folks at the Nabisco and Kellogg strikes where you had people who were like, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. We've got you scheduled for 40 hours. It's you're going to work 10 hours on Monday, six hours on Tuesday, 12 hours on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And, 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 And so they've been trying to fight back against this policy where the company is basically like, you have to do mandatory OT, but we're not going to call it OT. We're going to call it non-traditional schedule. We've creatively arranged the start and end times of the pay period and the work week respectively so that you can work seven days in a row, 60 hours, and none of it will count as overtime. I mean, they, they, they used to do this to my wife at her job. They'd make her work, uh, Two days, or, well, that she'd have two days off, two days on, two days off, nine days working. Ooh, wow! Or what? You know, I, my math is probably not adding up. Yeah. But it was it was but set it, up so that there was always a nine day stint in the middle. Yeah, but even in this case, like the if they managed to reach forty hours, I mean, like if they work you twenty four hours one day and then two hours every other day, you know, they've only made you work twenty or they've only made you work forty hours and don't have to pay you overtime. Right. You know, that's the kind of thing that that they're talking about in this situation, and uh, and unfortunately, because of the way that the uh, the rules at the UFCW came down, even though. There were 95 votes against the contract and 61 for, which if you know you do the basic math on that, you know, is obviously not approving of the contract because of a full two-thirds rule, similar to what Dan mentioned in the UPS uh, debacle back in 2016. Uh, they have just gone ahead and, and uh, forced this contract on these workers in that way. Yeah, and, and just like, for example, like this is almost the exact same split by which the UAW workers at Deer just rejected their most recent tentative agreement. Their their vote was 55% no, 45% yes. And because a majority did not want to content- accept the agreement, they're still on the picket line. But here, because of this undemocratic rule that basically gives way too much power to the bargaining committee, because essentially what this does is it, is it says, 
if the bargaining committee comes up with an agreement they like, they can more or less force it through because it, it, it only requires them to get 30 Four percent, you know, plus one. Yeah, well, uh, what is to vote for it? What is this fucking constitutional branches of government shit? Like the bargaining <laughs> committee is the president, and if if the if the workers who are like parliamentary want to veto the the veto of the president, they have to get a two thirds majority. Who fucking cares? It should be dead fucking simple. If the bargaining committee does not effectively represent the will of the workers, the workers should be able to turn down anything the bargaining committee presents with a simple 50% or greater vote, you know? Yeah. And so like, and these workers have, have, you know, faced abuse from the company since the strike started. They, they, they had their healthcare cut off basically right away at the beginning. And they announced a plan uh, in the middle of October to hire permanent replacement scabs. And, by the end of the week, the bargaining committee had basically, you know, uh, capitulated. And a- after that announcement, they were going to hire permanent replacements. And so the new five-year contract, which, by the way, five-year contract's a little long. Ridiculous. Yeah, way too long. Yeah. Um, features, you know, they have, they got some higher healthcare contributions, some better retirement plan money, and a small raise. But the distillery workers, like, pointed out that, like, the the company contribution like to their healthcare is only going up 4%. The the wages are only going up $3 an hour over the entire 5 year like contract. And while they are capping work hours at 40, which, you know, I'm like, well, isn't that already legally ca- yeah, <laughs> capped? Yeah. Right. You would think, but the the new contract doesn't really do anything to stop that non-traditional schedule yeah they were already operating on a technicality and it's like you didn't patch that bug you know yeah and the other thing is is that they specifically like the the big concern from the workers that were pointing complaining about this and, and pointing out why they voted no despite the fact that you know they'd face difficult conditions on those six those six weeks on the the, the line and were willing to stay out there was that the new contract that was agreed to by the bargaining committee essentially leaves the door open for the company to put in a two-tiered system because what they basically got was a, a, a tacit agreement that none of the existing employees would be, quote, forced into non-traditional scheduling work but can apply for that on a voluntary basis. But there's no protection from mandatory non-traditional scheduling for mandatory weekend work, basically, uh, for any new employees. So you've essentially opened the door for the, the distillery to say, we have pre-2021 employees and post-2021 employees. The same exact shit that, you know, the workers at the UAW are fighting to get rid of. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I hope that this... Uh maybe leads part of the members of the union to do maybe what the TDU was doing in the, in the Teamsters union, which is to create more of a push towards a democratic system instead of this kind of 
uh, bureaucratic system that yeah. current, currently exists. Well, I mean, you know how, like, they say uh, uh, a shocking amount of, of life forms evolve into crabs? It's like a shocking <laughs> amount of corporate influence evolves into multi-tiered systems for employees. Yeah. And yeah. uh, this just confirms my belief that we need to destroy all crabs. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, on that note, we do have our last story That's for right. the week. And it's uh, thankfully a fun one, which is so Labor Notes had a story recently that came out about some UPS workers who have have managed to throw out one of the best uh, examples of malicious compliance that I've seen in a while. (laughs) This is my fucking favorite. There's nothing better to me than malicious compliance because it achieves so many things at the same time. Uh, it, it is a show of solidarity and worker, um, support. It highlights the idiotic and often contradictory nature of the way things are quote unquote supposed to be done. And it always makes a splash in a headline, which is a good time. (laughs) Yeah. So these, I mean, we've talked about in the past plenty of times how the Teamsters drivers really don't like the current UPS contract Mm -hmm. and feel like they got screwed by, the the leadership, which is a big part of why there's a big push for reform in the union right now. And so one of the issues that these drivers specifically encountered was that while the, you know, quote unquote, regular drivers, because this is the thing, the UPS drivers are operating under a two-tiered contract. Mm-hmm. And so they have regular drivers who can't be forced to do mandatory OT and hybrid drivers who get paid less and can be forced into mandatory OT. And so while, you know, as we know, like since the beginning of the pandemic, the volume of shipping has just been absolutely insane. And so one of the ways that UPS has been trying to squeeze extra money out of its workforce without hiring more people is by telling, quote unquote, regular drivers that they have to come in and and work on Saturday, even though they know they can't force any of those drivers to do it. Right. Because their their wager is basically, well, we make this vague threat that we're not actually going to enforce and some of the people will come in and we only want a few people to come in anyway. So this will this will work out the way that we want it to. And we can, you know, prevent ourselves from having to actually, you know, hire enough people to do the work that we have and keep our people from being overworked. Right. Yeah. And so, and of then, course, the, right, the all of the workers come in uh, anyway, like every single one of them who's been called. And since their contract has an eight hour demand in it. Uh, basically, they all of those workers were paid in full for that entire shift. Yeah, right. And it gave uh, all of the quote unquote hybrid workers who don't have that demand in any kind of contract uh, the day off, which they very rarely get on a weekend. So it was kind of a win for everybody except the company <laughs> and all <laughs> yeah, of the which... managers who were working on that day who uh, reportedly, <laughs> once they saw the number of uh, uh, workers who had showed up for the shift, had to call their supervisors and impress upon them really how many workers had showed up <laughs> that day. <laughs> yeah, like they, the the workers, and this is, I don't think I mentioned it at the top, this is, this is Teamsters Local 413 in Columbus. And they mentioned that they showed up uh, for the shift that Saturday and they brought donuts and the hybrid, the hybrid drivers who'd been, you know, forced to come in Saturday after Saturday, after Saturday, Mm -hmm. after Saturday, seeing all the other regular drivers show up, 
the, the, they have a quote in here from the local 413 steward who said, quote, they were all super pumped to see us. They realized, oh, wow, these guys have our backs. And so that's the thing. This is like, this story has everything. It has malicious compliance, which is great on its own. It has these drivers forcing the company to pay them for a full day's work on a really light workload because they got way more workers coming in than they thought they were going to. Mm -hmm. And they were able to generate all this extra solidarity between the regular and the hybrid drivers. So just incredible work. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of shocking to me. This is the rank and me. file organizing we talk about. I mean, yes. it's, it's really so pitch perfect. And it has huge street fight radio energy which yes. is also funny because it's literally in columbus which is their city <laughs> yeah yeah i bet no, some of those listen on their on their uh on their daily drive yeah that I would imagine. make sense yeah 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 and and the thing the other thing though that was great from this was there was a another line here that i, I thought was excellent it was another line from from perry their union steward who was like understood you know the long game on this it's like look this is a great way to screw over the company and be like look this system's fucked up you have to stop doing things this way but that ultimately only by getting rid of the tiered system can they really fix this right. so i had a quote in here that said nobody was under any illusion that if we did it one week we wouldn't be forced the next it was just to show the company that we're strong and we're united and it gave a really good morale boost to hybrids and and just the fact that like there's that perspective from this sort of effort it's like we know we can show the strength of the union this way. We can build solidarity, but ultimately to solve this problem long-term, we have to get rid of the tiered contracts. Like right. that's, that's the sort of thing I think you can see how the effect of this sort of rank and file organizing and why you're seeing more support than ever for the reform slate in the Teamsters is really heartening. And I think bodes well for uh, potentially for the you know future organizing efforts from the Teamsters and places like Amazon. Yeah, yeah I mean, speaking it, it's... of doing things every week. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's time for the meme review. <laughs> yeah, so our first meme this week is, is directly from the John Deere strike. And I, I was a big fan of this one. So it's... <laughs> It's a procession, and it's so you've got a timeline of the deer strike in words on one side, and then you've got what a, is an escalatingly large series of John Deere tractors on the <laughs> other. So you start hashtag John Deere strike, negotiating a new union contract, and there's this little, like, basically like a, a lawn, like ride-on mower. Next step, 99% of members authorize a strike. Hey, you've got a bigger one. This is like, a, you know, a small farm tractor. Mm-hmm. Tentative agreement reached. And then you've got, oh, you got this is a pretty big one. You've got like a full cab and everything. You could do a lot with this big tractor. 90% of members voting, vote down tentative agreement, trigger nationwide strike. And then you have this gigantic triangular tract uh, trailer that, with or tractor and like, everything. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen like if you told that me, specific model. If you told me this was an amphibious vehicle, I would believe <laughs> it's a, you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tank tractor. It yeah, kind of and, is. Then we got new tentative agreement reached, and then there's a big-ass combine harvester next to it. Everyone's favorite. And then 55% of voting members vote down contracts. Strike continues, and it's the largest combine I've ever seen. That, this is truly, like, it looks like something out of, uh, like, a, a, a Monsters vs. Robots film. Well, the, like, the only way I think you have to go from this gigantic modern harvester is, like, one of those loader mechs from the aliens movies yeah, yeah, cuz yeah. like that's like the next step of evolution or, or, or that thing. that giant like buzzsaw bucket 
thing they built oh. in Germany that's like the most colossal piece of industrial equipment ever constructed. <laughs> yeah, the big like strip mine excavator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so our next one is got show favorite Elon Musk. Elon Husk, the corn man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He and he's came just out with in this a, dumb statement about taxes, and the, so we've got. I mean, this he's nice one of the most about it. He's one of the most cosmic brain people of all time. But it says, "Yeah, beware," uh, or it's quoting him apparently. Beware if they can tax a billionaire like me, they can tax you, regular people too. And then regular people just shrugging. They're like, "We've been paying our taxes this whole time, bro," uh, <laughs> which is the funniest thing when uh, like incredibly rich people weigh in on taxation. Because they're always trying to talk about like, you know, oh, what if the if enough average Joes, you know, evade their taxes? It's like you, there are law firms who advertise themselves as tax evasion law firms specifically for an accountant brokerages, firms, whatever, for billionaires. We know these exist because they're they're common knowledge. They exist on the yeah. public market because. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like because you had, this was in response to the potential, you know, addition of a, a quote billionaires tax to the uh, you know budget fight that's going on. But it's like the United States is itself like maybe the world's biggest tax haven. Like mm-hmm. you know, South Dakota, Delaware. Like there's these states that advertise themselves. Hey, come in here. We don't have any taxes. You can spend a little bit of money setting up a bunch of you know shell companies and greasing the palms of some politicians, and then you won't have to pay all your taxes. And so, like the ultimate result of that is that the only people actually paying taxes and funding the government are workers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then we receive like services stripped down uh, by austerity measures every two years and. Uh, rapidly disintegrating financial security while they use our tax money to bail out banks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, leads us right to our next meme, which is a means TV, uh, teenage stepdad style meme, which is a, kind of a two, uh, world war two poster, but, uh, but, but attacking president Biden and, uh, it says, uh, presidents change and the enemy remains. Fuck you, Mr. President. And it's a, <laughs> photo of joe biden uh and global capitalism being strapped with uh the american flag on on this poster it's it's a nice it's a nice little uh thing because it definitely shows that uh there is there's a way to be opposed to to the president because so many people online are are stuck in this uh democrats good republicans bad kind of mentality or whatever bullshit they want to believe yeah, well, I mean, it's the whole Let's Go Brandon thing, right? Which is like the worst meme of all time. But it's it, so annoying. It's stupid enough for Democrats to agree with Republicans that they will get outraged about it if the Republicans agree to continue saying it. And it just <laughs> fucking sucks. And now everybody's like, well, is it even really good to say the president is bad? And I'm like, why don't you <laughs> shut the fuck up? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. like you, because you were mentioning on Twitter the other day, John, it's like, because I think somebody was was being like, "What happened to all the 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 leftists?" And it's like, uh, "Yeah, well, this is what happens when you know a Democrat gets elected and the opportunists go back to not paying attention to actual politics mm-hmm. and they're paying attention to horse race bullshit and like focusing on supporting the Democrats." It's like, no, those weren't leftists, and that's why I like the the the, <laughs> the message of this could not be more clear or more correct. It's like. 
America is what is propping up global capitalism. And so when the president changes, the enemy is still the same spot. Well, it's like yeah. that meme that I think we covered once on this show where it just has every president since Reagan and they're just labeled different kinds of Reagan. Have you seen <laughs> <Yes>. that one? <laughs> uh, That's a very good one. And it's correct. <laughs> Ever since Reagan, you know, Reagan probably wasn't that different from Nixon or whatever, but, uh, you know, it, he was he was kind of the model that like all presidents have followed in one form or another to this day. He was their yeah, he was their George Carlin of presidents. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think Citations Needed did some recent episodes that go over this. Um, but but in in our next meme, we actually have a nice little four panel comic with uh, some talking dinosaurs. One uh, dinosaur that seems, you know, just regular and another that has a top hat and a monocle. That's right. <laughs> Which you should never trust. Never very, trust anyone. Very subtle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first, the first dinosaur says, what is the secret to success? And then the top hat dinosaur says, hard work, rich parents, and lying about 50% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Obviously, insinuating that uh, they don't actually do hard work. <laughs> you 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 come across two doors in Wonderland. One leads to heaven, and one leads to hell. And there's a bird guarding each door. <laughs> one bird works hard, and one bird has rich parents. You can only yeah. ask them one question. <laughs> <laughs> But That's the thing so is, funny. like, I feel like this is every other article on, like, Bloomberg or, like, Forbes where they're like, look, see, it's not America. It works. Capitalism works great. Here's this 34-year-old who makes $400,000 a year at this business they started. Anybody could do this. And two paragraphs. And it's like, look, they just had a they just had their drive, their hard work. And a small three hundred and fifty thousand dollar loan from their parents, yep. <laughs> and they they saved up their money while they stayed in uh, an unused wing of their parents' mansion. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's always the fucking same <laughs> shit. It's so predictable to the point where every time it happens, everybody's on Twitter posting "Say the line, Bart," with the <laughs> yeah. headline and the body of the fucking article. <laughs> yeah. So never listen to people telling you that you know. The meritocracy is real. It's not. It's bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I guess, you know, in that in the method of, of bullshit, we have got this Lenin meme, also a four panel. Um, yeah. Yeah, Dan, you can the, go ahead. Well, this one kind of, I, I, I put this one in here partially because I felt like this meme was made about, like, directly attacking me. <laughs> <laughs> As somebody who, like, uh, you know, has, you know, pretty, pretty left revolutionary podcast, but may struggle sometimes in the, uh, social part of socialism <laughs> <laughs> because so yeah, this is a, it's a four panel comic and it's, it's got Lennon out on the lectern there and he's, he's, he's given a big speech. You must be prepared to give your life to the revolution. And then it's the crowd and everybody's all fired up. You got, yeah. And everybody's like cheering. And then the next one, and talk to people. And then it cuts back and everybody's like looking down at the uh, floor. Yeah. <laughs> like, Pulls out uh, phone, starts scrolling Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's true. You And people are like, well, you know, the communists, they just have all of these like uh, these these figures that they idolize. And it's like, well, you need charismatic people 
to run a movement. You need someone who can give a good speech and impassion people and go out and shake hands and be effective. Like it's important to be as committed and as revolutionary and as militant as a Lenin or a Mao, but it's also important to be as much of like a Fred Rogers ass community figure Abs- as absolutely. Lenin or Mao. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, ac- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like that, that's like a big reason why I like this meme sent around. Cause it's like, I I tell people to read theory. I do fucking podcast episodes about theory, but ultimately like organizing for our side comes down to getting together and talking with people about their lives, about the way capitalism has fucked them over and made things shitty for them. And why the only way we're going to get out of it is by working together and a, and a huge portion of socialist organizing is just being able to talk to people and relate to them on that human level. And it's important to not lose sight of that. Yeah. yeah I mean, absolutely. it's, it's kind of trite, but like there's another old meme where it's like, uh, someone saying something like bigoted and stupid and the the leftist i don't know if it's supposed to be a liberal or a leftist or whatever but they're like it's not my job to educate you and then the person turns to the other side of the bench and there's like a neo-nazi there with with his literature and he's like hey buddy i'll talk to you about this all afternoon and it's like if you know whatever your fucking ideology is i think um Adam Johnson said this on the most recent episode of Citations Needed, but like politics is fundamentally an evangelical exercise. It's about yeah. convincing people to agree with you. <laughs> like that's yeah. what it yeah. is. Like, and to do that, you actually have to talk to them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, if you'd like to hear uh, some uh, some theory analysis from Dan, we actually have our new episode of Lenin on the Trade Union Question. And I encourage people to become a patron and get that episode. If you cannot afford to be a patron, go ahead and reach out to one of us. We'd be happy to give you uh, that file so that you can check it out anyway. Yeah, meet uh, us around back in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, join the Discord. Uh, it's a lot easier to communicate with us that way. Uh, share whatever episodes you really like with your with your comrades and your friends and your family. It helps uh, more people hear about what's going on out in the labor movement. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. And uh, listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, Red Game Table. And I have a new project that I'm helping do production and editing on called uh, Notes on the Crises, which you can find at uh, crisesnotes.com. That's C-R-I-S-E-S-N-O-T-E-S.com. Uh, it's a economics podcast, mostly based in like some MMT theory and and more like uh, trying to get get people who might not be as uh, communist bent to understand more communist economic theory. So uh, worth worth checking out for you if you're interested in in this particular episode was about supply chains. So anyway, on that note, again, as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity.